Guys, I've got an awesome opportunity to tell you about. You can check out the Go Hunt Insider for free for a 30-day free trial right now. All you got to do is go to Go Hunt, that's G-O-H-U-N-T dot com forward slash J Scott. Look for the blue Start Your Free 30-Day Trial button and click there. This is by far the most valuable tool a Western hunter could give themselves. Insider changes how hunts and hunting information are found. When you go in the Insider, you'll be able to check out the filtering 2.0 system. You'll also be able to check out the draw odds for each unit, for each animal, for each state. Go Hunt Insider has the best draw odds on the market as far as the most accurate. There's no one that gets as meticulous level of accuracy as Go Hunt Insider. You'll see there's complete coverage of 4,200 different profiles, every unit, every state, every species, every season, in-depth analysis, interactive maps, season trends, unit access, camping and lodging nearby, and historical weather. You'll also be able to see some of the additional benefits, the strategy articles on how to apply, let's say, in Arizona for elk, for antelope, for deer. You can go in there and see how in-depth they get. It's an unbelievable opportunity, a free 30-day trial. They also do monthly giveaways, so just by being an Insider member, you get monthly giveaways. They give over $100,000 plus per year of giveaways, gear, tags, hunts. Another unbelievable thing about the Insider is the Go Hunt gear shop. So every time you buy something, you accumulate points. In, in essence, it's giving money back to the Insider. You might ask, well, how does this work with the Go Hunt Insider? How does the 30-day free trial work? You can sign up to try Insider's industry-leading hunting products free for 30 days. They do take your credit card information so that you can automatically become a member once you, your 30-day trial ends. You can cancel at any time during the 30-day free trial, and it doesn't cost you a dime. You might ask, how is this different from other resources out there? Insider provides analysis and tools for every unit, every species, and every hunt. In each state that they cover, they don't just cover the top 10 units. Their coverage is super in-depth, and you can find those hidden gem units, maybe something that the draw odds uh, are a little bit better, and maybe some quality it's slipped through the cracks, and you might find a great hunt there. Right now, Go Hunt Insider covers Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, Utah, and Wyoming. All you have to do is go to GoHunt.com forward slash J Scott and check it out now. Welcome to the J Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is we're going to have a lot of fun with my friend Ben Storak from Arcadia Outfitting. Ben also guides at Arctic Red River and uh, looking forward to talking to you. Ben, how are you doing? Hey, great, Jay. How are you doing today? Oh, just fantastic. Uh, you know, um, getting excited for my Arctic Red hunt, um, and I don't know if you knew, but I also drew the Chugach um, hunt in August, so I actually have two doll sheep hunts uh, for myself personally this, this summer, and um, something I've been looking forward to, so I'm excited. That's awesome. Holy man, are you lucky. Two, two doll sheep in one year? <laughs> it doesn't get better than that. I know. I, it's crazy. I'm, I'm super stoked. Um, Ben, uh, before we dive into the podcast, um, we talked a little bit before we were rolling. Um, why don't you give a little background? It sounds like uh, as a kid moving around, you, you moved around 22 or 23 times, and 
Um, talk a little bit about, you know, where you're from, a little bit of your upbringing, um, you know, bouncing around, maybe some of the different places you've been, and then how that led into guiding um, up there. For sure, yeah. No, I was uh, born in central Alberta, um, and my dad was an RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer. So uh, we, we moved a lot. He was transferred every couple of years, um, sometimes multiple times per year. And basically the reason for that was to get uh, promotions throughout the way. Um, so, yeah, I, I moved 23 times growing up by the time I was 18 years old, um, which was crazy. Luckily, most of that was before I was, uh, you know, 10 years old. So uh, the majority of the friends I made in my older years uh, I've been able to stay in contact with, you know, which is good. But it was definitely hard on our family for sure, and, uh, and it made me have a broader sense of the world for which was nice you know i wasn't focused on one town or one city um and i got to see a lot of the worlds or a lot of alberta anyways so uh so that was nice but uh yeah i don't know just started uh started in this outfitting hunting world when i was 15 and, and my dad got us into that you know we'd go hunting with him but it was all road hunting right that's kind of what you do in, in alberta and you just bomb around and hopefully you bump a deer off the road and you, you get out and try to shoot as quick as you can so that's how I learned um <laughs> that's how a lot of people learn I guess and uh just kind of went from there so at school of hard knocks so right just got, kind of got thrown into it um uh the outfitting part of it and uh just kept it going and I've learned a lot since so yeah for sure um so when you made the transition from you know loving to hunt and all of that and then you said hey I want to I want to guide what was like your first step as far as guiding? I mean, were you a wrangler? Were you a packer? Like, how did you how did you first cut your teeth on on guiding? Um, yeah, I was a wrangler actually, and kind of funny way to get into it. But you know, like I said, grew up hunting, grew up with horses, so knew all about it, but didn't know that that was actually a career. And it was actually a girl that got me into it um, when I was in grade ten. She came back from from the summer her dad was a guide and she was a wrangler for midnight sun and uh she just ranted and raved about this so she uh she said you know this is a wicked job you'd love it you'd be good at it and i i had no clue what she was talking about but she showed me all kinds of photos so yeah you know we didn't last very long a couple months but i fell in love with the job and the idea of the job and almost as a way to impress her i kind of i, I took a uh, two-week packing training, horse training clinic in British Columbia with Stan Walchuk, a great clinic. And uh, he ended up getting me a job that summer as a wrangler. I actually took uh, a string of horses, 14 horses into the mountains with residents of BC, and uh, we went hunting. And uh, they didn't get anything, but uh, it was a heck of a good experience, and I learned a lot. And then uh, from there, just kind of continued on with the wrangling deal. And from from you know 15 to 18 you have to wrangle or pack you can't be a guide legally um you have to be 18 years old a guide so when 18 years old hit i went north and uh started from there started in the yukon so tell me about your start i mean it sounds like you started in the yukon you know who were you with how long did you do that and what what all you know was involved with your job Right, so when I was 18, started in uh, in Ruby Range Outfitters, uh, just right beside Kuwani Lake there. Awesome little gem of an outfit. Has probably the highest density of doll sheep anywhere in the Yukon, um, but it's also the smallest area. I think it's 
maybe seven or 800 square miles, which is sounds big for down in the States, but it's really small for the North Country. Um, and Ryan Leaf was the outfitter at that time. Uh, worked with some great people, awesome area, learned a lot. Um, and then from there, moved on, um, went to Bonnet Plume Outfitters and worked for Chris McKinnon. And that's a phenomenal outfit, great moose, caribou sheep, great outfitter, really knows his stuff. Um, and it was actually, I went from a guide when I was 18, and I went, I wanted to learn more under more experienced guides, because I was kind of just thrown into it in the North Country um, at Ruby Range a little bit, and we still did great, you know, got a lot of sheep down on the ground and caribou and moose, but I uh, just wanted to learn more. So that's why I went to, to Bonnet Flume Outfitters, and uh, Chris McKinnon had probably the, the best uh, employees or guides in the industry, um, you know, guys that are mostly outfitters now, you know, Colin Niemeyer um, and many others. And uh, luckily I was fortunate to work with these guys and learn quite a bit. So I spent another season there learning from these guys. And then uh, I went to Widrig Outfitters, the, the neighbor to him, and uh, I guided there for a number of years as well before coming to Arctic Red. Um, all great outfits, learn lots of different things from everybody. Um, you know, a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. You kind of learn what not to do from certain people and what to do from others, which is great. It's all a learning curve. But uh, really, that's the best way to learn, I think, in the industry. Just work with experienced guides or outfitters that have done it for many, many years and uh, and make mistakes and screw up and, and figure it out from there. For sure. I mean, wouldn't you agree that, you know, guiding and outfitting and, and dealing, you know, with people. One of the biggest challenges is obviously when you're young as well is you may find a great big ram or you may find, you know, exactly what you guys are looking for as a team when you're out there guiding. But did it take you a while to realize that sometimes the guys that you're actually taking physically, mentally, like sometimes even if you find that big ram or whatever, like you have to rein in your expectations as to what you can actually do. And did you, did you have any learning curves with that, you know, type of story where, you know, maybe rams got away or, or whatever you were hunting got away and you realized quickly that you kind of had to either ramp it back or, or make it where, hey, we, we can't race up there because my client, there's no way he can do it. Did you adapt your style, I guess is what I'm saying, to, you know, the client that you're hunting with and realize that everybody has a different level of threshold? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think right from the get-go, I was, like I said, kind of throw in, thrown into it. And I had a lot of guys that were quite a bit older. I mean, talking late 60s, early 70s. And these are guys that have been sheep hunting for many, many years and still mentally could do it but physically just we're not there and you know when you're 18 19 years old you just run up those mountains and it's not an issue for you whatsoever so i'd race up there and i'd find these animals and you know i'd, I'd leave the hunter with with the wrangler or the packer and i'd come back and say yep we found them and let's go back up there and get them and you know i'd take off and they'd be you know way behind so i'd have to slow way down and you know just it was it was hard as a young guy to kind of accept that because you can see that you know you can get up there and you can get that ram right away but it's not about you it's about them it's their hunt they're the ones that paid for it and it's their experience and so throughout the years really you just you learn that you got to slow down and just take a breather and go their pace you know i i walk my own pace but i i slow down or i stop every 
you know, 50 to 100 yards going up the mountain, and I, I'll sit there in glass and wait for them to catch up a little bit. You know, you can't get too far away, obviously. Um, and uh, just let them do their thing and just keep pushing them, you know, positive pressure, right? And uh, you just, you can't, you can't ruin it for them. It's their experience. But uh, it's, yeah. everyone's different. Everyone, everyone has their own physical or mental disability or capability, right? So I guess the more you train, the better off you are. But really, it's the big parts in your head. I mean, if, if you're mentally there and you are willing to put in that effort, even if you go slow, you, you're going to get a sheep. I mean, it, it just it happens. You just got to believe it, right, which is the hardest part for people. I know it's a, it's a big chunk of money to put out there, and everybody's always worried that they may not get something, um, but just trust the land, right, and it's going to happen. Uh, it always does. Ben, how old are you now? I uh, just turned 29 uh, just over two weeks ago, so pretty young still. 29. Good for you. That's fantastic. Um, if you had to, I'm sure you don't know exactly, but, I mean, roughly how many doll sheep have, you know, you've been a part of, you know, being shot or, you know, been a part of being harvested? Yeah, um, I'm not sure about doll sheep, but sheep in general as a accumulation probably uh, somewhere in the 40s, mid-40s, I think, so far. And, and um, would you so say most of your experiences with doll or, or other, other sheep, what, you know, tell me a little bit about your sheep background as far as all of the different different sheep. Right, so the majority have been doll sheep for sure, um, you know, probably 90% of them. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to Kyrgyzstan a couple of years ago, four years ago with Brian Martin, uh, Asian Mountain Outfitters, and uh, harvested a bunch of Marco Polo and Ibex down there, and just unreal hunt, wicked animal, a um, lot of fun and, and challenging. You know, the, the elevation is very high, You're, you know, 12,000 to 16,000 feet in Kyrgyzstan, right? And uh, from going from hunting doll sheep to Marco Polo, I mean, their body size, they're, they're slightly bigger, but their horns are just unreal. They're two to three times as big as a doll sheep in mass and length. Um, so that was really, really cool to do that and definitely worth worth doing for anybody that's interested in, a, in an Asian sheep. Um, but, you know, now I have my own area as well, Arcadia Outfitting, and uh, we have California Bighorn there, which is a, a you know, subspecies of, of the Rocky Mountain Bighorn, basically. And uh, as of right now, probably the rarest sheep in North America. Um, so we're fortunate enough to have those in our area and uh, been been hunting them since last year. We've just had the outfit for a year now and uh, looking forward to this upcoming September to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. I believe when I uh, saw you last, I believe it was at the Western Hunting Expo in Salt Lake City. Um, mm-hmm. You were there, I think, uh, with Tavis. Um, at his booth, but I, I believe you had just gotten married. Is that is that true? You just got married? Uh, no, we've been married for just over three years now, but uh, Rosie okay. just moved okay. to Canada officially, so... Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. It's been a bit of a long-distance relationship. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I want to dive into Arctic Red. Um, obviously, I'm excited to go up there. I have not been... Uh, up there in the north country, the you know the furthest north. I well, I've been to Alaska, but I have uh, Fernie, BC. Um, you know, I've been to Glacier National Park, but I mean that's about the extent of my Canadian um, travels. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I kind of want to dive in. I've had several podcasts with 
with uh, different people on it. And um, I'm the type of guy that, uh, you know, I love to know as much as I can before I get there to be able to prepare mentally, physically, you know, my gear, what have you. Um, and I just like, as well as other hunters, you know, like hearing how the hunts go and just some of the little things on, you know, when you get into camp, you know, travel, what to expect, some of the different things, and then, you know, throughout the hunt. Yeah. So bear with me. I've got, you know, probably a, a, a long list of rabbit trails we're going to go down. But uh, how long uh, have you guided at Arctic Red? This will be the sixth season now with the, with Tavis and Arctic Red. Okay, so... And then you typically do the horseback portions of Arctic Red. Did you ever do just the backpack hunts as well? Uh, you know, for the last many, many years, I was just horseback. And last season, um, kind of in lieu of, of me purchasing my own area, I asked Travis, you know, I said I wanted to try something different and, you know, let me go backpacking for a little bit. So for the first time, I did go backpacking for over half the season, um, which was a nice change. It was good to switch it up. Yeah, so um, at Arctic Red, obviously he does horseback hunts and then does backpack hunts, and obviously knowing nothing about his concession or anything, I assume that he has areas that you can access by horseback, and how many days ride is it usually to, like, your main camp, and then I assume he brings those hunters to you by plane? Correct, yeah. So actually what we have to do with the horse is we, we take off from the nearest road, which is north of Mayo in Yukon, and we we ride 10 days straight to get into Arctic Red. That's how remote we are. Um, so it's over 300 miles of, I mean, backcountry riding, crossing rivers, valley crossings, going up and over mountain passes. Um, first three days, is it's bog for the whole way, you know, up to the horse's bellies. It's probably the toughest ride um, for any outfit out there right now. And actually, the guys are doing it right now. This is the first time in 14 years I haven't trailed in. So it's kind of a weird feeling. Um, I'm out in civilization right now. But uh, when they finally get in there, you know, they'll be there a couple of days before the start of the season. They'll set up. They'll get into position for that hunt, wherever they want to start, um, and set up a nice camp. And then Tavis will fly the hunter into the nearest airstrip, which is usually within an hour, an hour and a half of their horse camp. And then from there, you know, you'll you'll hunt out of that main wall tent camp for, you know, five, six, seven days, something like that. And then if they're, you're not seeing rams for some reason, which you usually always do, um, then they would make a decision to move again into another good spot and again hunt that area methodically. Um, so the luckily the hunter is never riding long, long distances like we ask you to get the horses there. It's, uh, it's a pretty tough go. So when you guys... Um, ride these horses in are you riding across somebody else's concession um, or is it all in uh, the arctic red concession or how, how does that work as far as your travel to the area right no we actually cross multiple outfits just to get to arctic red so where we start um, i believe right there or right next to it is midnight sun's area alan young which is now jesse and logan young um, and then after two days, we get into Bonnet Plume Outfitters, Chris McKinnon, and we ride through his area for another day and a half. And then we jump into Widrig Outfitters, and we're riding through his area for another, uh, I think, three days. And then we finally cross into the NWT border, and we get into Arctic Red. And uh, within, a, within a day of there is where we start sheep hunting. 
So we uh, we go through a lot of outfits just to get to Arctic Red. I mean, which is good. That's why the sheep get so big. We're so remote, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, that, that, I'm sure you've got a lot of stories from years past traveling. Did you ever have any wrecks where um, I, are you using horses or mules? All horses, yeah. I've used mules throughout the years, but it takes a special person to be patient enough for mules, and uh, that's not me, <laughs> I guess. So, no, mostly horses. No horses, you ever have them blow up on you and, and um, just have a complete train wreck where you got, like, you know, horses are, you know, gotten loose and running back to where they came from and all that nonsense? Yeah, pretty well every year we'll have, I mean, multiple, <laughs> at least a handful of good wrecks where luckily no one ever gets hurt and, you know, it's just horses being horses and doing their thing. But, yeah, they uh, they test your patience for sure. And I think one year in particular, uh, we were heading out, we were trailing out, and trail out's usually better. You know, we're in condition, the horses are in shape, and we all want to get the heck out of there, right? You know, it's getting cold and you're ready to finish the season. And we had just crossed out of Arctic Red, gotten into Widrig's area, and uh, set up at a really nice camp, and, you know, our, our trail out's 10 days, so you, you got to let the horses go at night. They're hobbled, right? They're chains on their front feet, and you let them go to graze. Otherwise, if you don't, if you tie them up to trees every day, they're going to lose condition, and they won't make it out. They'll give it up on you, uh, give up on you. So we were generous, and we, we thought, okay, you know, this is kind of a tough wrangling spot. We'll, we'll let them go tonight. We'll let them feed. There's hundreds of little beautiful meadows that were old lakes that have been dried up. And, you know, they can go 50 yards from our camp here, and, and they can eat there all night long. We had 14 horses. So we let them go thinking this. And uh, we woke up the next morning, and we searched everywhere for those thinking horses, and we couldn't find them. And uh, we just managed to track them through the trees. They're zigzagging their way along. And they literally crossed the Bonnet Plume River, heading back into Arctic Red. Um, <laughs> you know, and the river was massive. I mean, it's it's up to our you know our nipples it's it's pretty deep and it's raging you know and it had just snowed a whole bunch and uh so we thought holy crap what are we going to do now you know we wasted all day trying to find these things thinking they wouldn't cross the river in hobbles and they did so we got on the phone with uh with tavis we told him the situation and he's like you know what we nobody else is there you guys are going to have to have to just try to go get them so my brother and i got up early the next morning and that night the lake we were at literally froze three inches thick we chucked a big rock onto it and just bounced it was cold probably minus uh minus 25 fahrenheit something like that cold cold oh my goodness and uh by the by the time we got to the arctic or the, the bonnet flume river sorry there was big chunks of ice floating down and i mean it was it was not a pretty sight so we we tore off our clothes we put our our rain pants on and uh and our muck boots and we roped each other up actually my brother and i and just in case one of us washed away and so we we started crossing the river i went first and we just started booging across the river and luckily we we made it you know we had to swim a small section and then once we got past that the middle of the river we were walking on our feet again and but it was slippery and we're you know hitting away these chunks of ice as they're bumping into us going across and we get to the other side, and we tried starting a fire, but everything was so wet from the snow that you were just wasting time. And literally, our rain pants were so frozen as soon as we crossed out into the air that the zippers snapped. I mean, they just busted right off. Of oh, my gosh. 
so so we just uh you know we put our clothes back on that we had in the little dry bag crossing the river and we just we started walking just to stay warm and we ended up walking 12 miles back towards arctic red and we found the horses standing on a gravel bar not even feeding just standing in the rocks literally doing nothing oh we were so angry so we got behind (laughs) them and you know, we, we tried catching a couple to jump on them, but as soon as we jump on one or two, the other ones would bugger off and try getting around us and continue on, continue on Arctic Red, right? So we just had to jump off and push them all, you know, yelling at them and and uh, a little bit of swearing here and there, of course. But, yeah, literally walked 12 miles back on our own two feet. And uh, when we got back, Widrig was actually coming that day. And they we all used the same camps on the way out. So we had 14 horses. He would have had 26 to 28 horses, and we thought, okay, this is not okay. We're going to have to just saddle up and get out of here so we don't have, you know, over 40 horses mixed together causing fights and trailing out together. So we saddled up, and we started riding that night. And I think we got to our next camp at 3 in the morning. Literally couldn't see a single thing for two and a half hours straight, and I'm just hoping I'm on the right trail. And uh, the last hour, thankfully, the northern lights came out when it cleared up, and I could finally see the trail, and we just kept going and, and got there, at, yeah, like I said, 3 in the morning. So that was quite an adventure. Oh, my goodness. So let me ask you a question. If, if for whatever reason, you couldn't find them, and if you just left them, even though they're hobbled, would they walk themselves out? I mean, like, do they, they know where, I mean, they obviously probably know where they're at. Would they walk themselves back out or not uh no they wouldn't um you know it's an, it's a newer string of horses Arctic Red's only been there for like I said six years now with horses or six and a half seven I guess um but uh no those horses were going the wrong direction they were going back in because that's that's where they spend three months each year right so that's home to them right. the trail gotcha. isn't they're only there for half a day um no gotcha. so that we would we have to get them out of there so in essence, when they left you at their camp, they were going home. They went back to Arctic Red. They were going where they know. Exactly. Yeah. They wow. What a story. So it's hard, hard to blame them, you know, but it made us pretty mad. <laughs> oh, man, I can, I can bet. So the horseback areas and the backpack areas within Arctic Red, are they kind of different areas, meaning I assume he leaves the horseback guys you know, the, the wranglers and the guides, plenty of room for them to do that, and then he does his backpack hunts in completely different areas, or do they ever overlap? Uh, no, they're separate areas. Um, with the horseback stuff, it's all along the southern and southwestern boundaries, so basically Widrig and, and uh, Chris McKinnon's kind of border. Um, and the only reason for that basically is because if we go any farther north, I mean, we're just getting farther from the trailhead to where we have to get them out, right? So there's no point pushing them farther. We're, we're in good sheep country there already. Um, and in, for some reason, it seems like in general, those areas that we are with the horses, there's a, a lower density of sheep. Um, but when you do find a ram, it's, it's usually a good old big ram. So you may see less, but you're going to find great quality. Whereas a lot of the backpack areas, you're going to find a ton of sheep um, and you know probably look over 50 to 100 grams per hunt. But of those, you know, 10 will be good shooters, right, as opposed to where the horses are, where the first one you find is probably a good shooter. So just a little different. Um, yeah, I mean, I think yeah. that's very similar to, like, mule deer 
you know, some of the places we hunt down here where, you know, we're higher density. A lot of times you look through a lot of bucks, but just don't find anything good. And then you find those areas. And even like our two-steer places in Sonora, some of the lower density ranches that, you know, you don't see as many bucks, you tend to find, you know, a handfuls of good ones rather than looking mm-hmm. over, you know, 30, 40 bucks uh, in a day and you never find one good one. So, I mean, I, I, I can see the correlation there. Um, yeah. So last year you wanted something a little bit different. Um, you wanted to do backpacks, so you did half and half. Um, mm-hmm. From a from a just strictly guiding standpoint, like what you like, do you like doing the horseback hunts, or do you, would you rather just do the backpack hunts as a guide? And maybe that's changed. Maybe before you're like, oh, I'd never want to do backpack. I only want to do horseback. But maybe you just changed. But I'm just curious, like, mm-hmm. if you had your choice, what would you do? Uh, you know, honestly, if I had my choice, I'd probably still do horseback just because I've done it for 14 years. And there's a bit of a romance there, right? With, with having the horses in the mountains, doing it as the old timers did it, you know, packing up camp, moving, and it's a lot more work for sure. Um, you know, having to get up and catch those horses in the morning and and dealing with the problems and all the issues that they bring. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's just, it's part of who I am, I guess, but um, yeah, I'd probably stick with horses, but backpack for sure, I would say is much easier from a guide standpoint. You know, maybe it's different for clients because they're not the ones, you know, waking up at three or four in the morning and going to catch those horses, right? Whereas we are. So from our standpoint, horses are definitely harder, which I guess yeah. brings more of a reward as well. But, uh, sure. backpack is, is definitely an enjoyable hunt as well. Um, I'm, I'm curious yeah. on the horses. Um, obviously there's quite a few bears around and such Um, how aware are those horses of bears and how often like do they sense the bears around before you even have a clue the bears around Uh, they're definitely on the ball for sure Um, and it's the same with moose any caribou any animal I mean I've been riding along plenty of times where I'm just daydreaming about what I have to cook for supper that night. And all of a sudden the horse perks right up and looks a direction and, you know, there's a grizzly or a moose, right? And I didn't have a clue they were there. And sometimes it's worked out to our benefit and that's a, a shooter moose or caribou and we ended up harvesting it, which is awesome. And that would have never happened if it was just me walking along, paying attention to my own feet, right? But um, as far as the grizzlies go, you know, they never bother us on the horses. They, they, they'll, they're curious. They don't know what we are and they've never seen humans or horses before in that country. Um, and they'll come up a little bit, you know, they'll come within a hundred, 200 yards of us and check us out, but they're scared too. They'll take off. We've never had any issues with them. So it's a bit of a misnomer that grizzlies are going to be a big bother up there. I mean, they leave us alone. They don't want trouble. As far as the backpacking standpoint in, you know, with the grizzlies around, um, you know, what are some of the things that you know, someone like myself that's never been up there, what should I keep my eye out for? What are some areas that, you know, would, would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up like I need to be on my toes? Or or is it really not like that? Is it like, oh, you see them every once in a while, but you don't have to be on alert at all times? Or would you say, no, you got to be on your toes at all times? Uh you know, I don't know, maybe I'm a little too casual about it, but spending the time that I have up there, it seems like y- you don't see them that often. And when you do, you usually know they're there. 
um, well in advance. You know, the, the country is so open, unless you're going through thick buckbrush for some reason, um, and you can't see right in front of you. But, um, no, I mean, I wouldn't be cautious of, or too, too worried about it, sorry. Be, be cautious, you know, be on your guard. Obviously, have your gun um, readily available, but, but don't be scared that you're going to run into grizzlies and they're going to attack you by any means. I mean, they're just, they'll leave you alone as long as you're not within them and their cubs, right? That's the biggest issue you might encounter. Um, but those sows are usually pretty tight knit with their cubs and they'll, they don't want any trouble again. So they'll leave you alone. But you know, when you go to the bathroom, bring your rifle obviously, and always have it with you and, you know, don't leave a bunch of garbage lying around, um, you know, keep a tidy camp, that kind of thing. I guess the only place that I would be, worried about bumping a grizzly bear and having an issue is if you know you know there's a dead carcass there from a caribou or moose or something and and uh you know that something's been chewing on it you obviously stay away from that um because probably there is a grizzly bear either coming to it or or already on it and they're going to defend it it's their kill um so definitely one to be cautious about for sure and as well you know if, if you have to bushwhack through any thick timber or uh, or willows um you know you may bump one but very likely they'll hear you coming and they'll just take off so i mean even that you're you're pretty good to go so i just yeah i wouldn't even worry about it too much to be honest with you just be, just be alert okay let's talk a little bit about um traveling in arriving at base camp and then getting on out to the area um I'm flying into Edmonton, then uh, Yellowknife, then Norman Wells. I have a room at the Heritage. I've been told to be prepared if the weather's good and I land um, in Norman Wells that Tavis may have a guy there. Um, I guess the, the charter flight, they might have a you know guy there saying, hey, we're going to go right now. Um, mm-hmm. and from what I understand there, the hunters need to you know change clothes and like be in your gear with your pack your gun out of your case and then they have a place to leave all of the gear um if i'm saying anything that you you don't agree with please stop me um but like Mm -hmm. potentially or or it could be bad weather and go ahead and go on to the hotel um i i haven't heard from tavis to know that you know like if i if if I get there and it's good weather, I just assume someone's going to be there to tell me, or or should I just go on to the hotel and wait for word from Tavis because he'll know where I'm at? No, Tavis usually knows exactly what's going on. Um, and if not Tavis, he'll have his own pilot, Mark, out there as well. Um, and sometimes he just gets his charter company um, to do it as well. So regardless, there will be somebody there helping you guys out. Um, you're never left on your own to do your own. Uh, things obviously so there will be somebody helping you guys um it's you know it's very possible that you could be weathered in um usually early july like you're heading there the first time here the weather's usually awesome usually hot um you know high ceilings so you you can usually get out no problem um so definitely be prepared to to rock and roll i would like like you said when you get there you know have your gear on your backpack packed and be ready to get out there because usually by the time you get to base camp Tavis and Mark are ready to fly you guys out directly from there to your guide, um, and we'll start shuttling you guys right away. And the guide usually has your food packed and ready to rock already with him, or he will give it to you when you get to base camp. Um, so just, yeah, be ready to rock and roll, because it can happen fast as soon as you get there, which is good. You want to get out there and start hunting, right? So, 
Yeah, absolutely. And I have all my own food, so it, I'll try and send Tavis a message. But if you happen to see him, just tell him Jay's got all. I mean, I have I have everything. So, um, awesome. Good stuff. The the other thing is, um, I've been obviously watching the weather for Norman Wells. Um, when you're trying to look, there's a few pieces of gear that I'm trying to say. You know, do I go with the lighter piece or the warmer piece? Do you use Norman Wells, or is there another city that, that is actually closer to where I might be hunting, or is Norman Wells the place that, you know, you use to, to monitor what's going on as far as weather? We, we use two. So we use Norman Wells and Old Crow. It's another little settlement just north of us. Um, okay. And we just kind of take the, the average between the two. Neither of them are exact for where we're at, but if you kind of go off at both of them and take the middle ground, um, you're pretty safe, um, and it should be close to that. Okay. Okay, sounds good. And what would, you know, I've heard people say the first hunt last year was really warm. Uh, one question I would have is, you know, wh I'm looking at the weather now, like what it, what is considered really warm? Uh, I mean, really warm last year was, I mean, probably in the 85 to 90 range. Um, oh, really? I mean, so, like, when, when you really looked on the Norman Norman Wells weather, it was, like, saying 85, 90 degrees? I don't remember. I, I, ne I never look at the weather, actually, in Norman Wells. I mean, Travis does that. I just remember being out there and just cooking. It was hot, and all the water was really low. I mean, the creek crossings were no problem. It was the hottest I've ever seen it up there in the six years at Arctic Red. So it was a little abnormal, um, but on average, I mean, you're looking at at weather in the 70, 70 degree range, which is still really, really nice. Um, so definitely be prepared for a couple thunderstorms early in the season. It seems like we get some pretty wicked lightning storms early on in July. Um, so good rain gear is essential. I'm sure you've got that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm looking at the Norman Wells weather right now, and like today it's or tomorrow it says high of 55, low of 47 rain, but then Saturday mm -hmm. is 72, 57, Sunday is 83, 60, and then it goes wow. 78, 76, 69, 66. Kind of those first days I'm going to be there, it's kind of like 66, 66, 67, and it shows rain. So that, that yep. still wouldn't, is that considered what you would say, like that's on the cold end or is that normal? Uh, it's probably a little bit on the cold end for this time of the year, for sure. That seems like more okay. kind of mid-August to late-August weather. Okay. Okay. Okay, sounds good. Um, and then once once Tavis flies us into base camp, like you said, a lot of times there's not a lot of staying around base camp unless weather came in. Be prepared to, like, you're going to hit at base camp and then fly immediately out to meet your guide, right? You betcha, yep. Okay. Um, and then as far as spotting scopes, um, I've had some, uh, I've talked with Brendan Burns and uh, Brian Remza hunted there last year. Uh, I have a STX 95-millimeter uh, Swarovski scope, um, and mm -hmm. I also have this, you know, the 65-millimeter, and I've kind of been going yeah. back and forth as to which one. Some of the guys are saying you absolutely want the bigger spotting scope. Some guys are saying you want the 65-millimeter Obviously, if you're doing a horseback hunt and weight isn't as big of a factor, you'd probably say bring the 95. But what, what is your opinion? 
Um, and I don't know my guide, so I don't know what kind of spotting scope he has as well. So what's your thoughts right. on that? Um, 100%, whoever your guide is, they'll have a spotting scope. And most of the guides have really good quality stuff, either Swarovski, Leica, or Zeiss. Um, so no matter what, if you bring one, they'll have one as well. So in my personal opinion, as the hunter, I would say bring the 65. Um, okay. I think I, I carry a Zeiss, uh, an 85, just for the extra zoom. Um, and most of the guides are carrying 65s. Um, but you, don't, you just don't need that extra weight. It's just going to be overkill. Right. And with two spotting okay. scopes, you know, two people to judge, I think you'll be fine. You don't need it. Okay. Okay. And then, um, obviously, every place that... Uh, you know, Tavis drops us off or whatever, you know, every place is different, but can you walk me through like more than likely how it's going to shake out? Like, am I going to land in a glaciated valley and we're going to either work up or down a drainage, you know, kind of talk to me about the general rule of thumb there at Arctic Red. Yeah, for sure. So again, super dependent on the area, but for the most part, all the, all the airstrips are on the river uh, valley bottoms. Um, yeah. Like glaciated valleys, like you said, so you'll land in a good wide open location. Um, generally, you'll set up camp right there for the night unless the guide has a different plan, but usually hang out there. I mean, you're right in sheep country already. Pretty well every airstrip that has ever been made in Arctic Red was created because someone either killed a caribou or a sheep and didn't want to pack it any farther. So they found a good location, built an airstrip, and then flew it out of there. So at one point or time or another, you know, that was the kill spot. So there's good sheep and caribou right there. So uh, just be on the, on, on the lookout and find, you know, what's in that area. And from that point, if you don't find something, every guide's different as well. You know, I generally tend to head up high and I'll, I'll be on the top of a mountain and I'll look as far as I can. And if I can find a gr good group of rams in the distance, you know, that's my plan for the next day. Um, other guides tend to, stick to the valley bottom and follow the rivers and just, you know, walk along slowly and just glass up each drainage um, and check out, you know, each area methodically. And then if there's nothing there, keep on moving to the next one. So again, just super dependent on, on each guide, but um, definitely plan on doing some walking for sure. And yeah. most people yeah. will, you know, you'll walk, uh, you know, it depends, but you know, three to five miles in a day, maybe farther, maybe up to 10 depending on the area and then set up camp again, you know, drop all your food, all your extra clothing, your equipment. And then from there you'll spike out for a couple of days, you know, just take your day pack with your spotting scope, your lunch, whatever. And then you'll be pretty light and then you'll hunt out of that location for two or three days and then move on. So the only time you'll actually be carrying, you know, all that weight is if you're traversing to your next camp. So uh, it's not too, too difficult for the most part. How how um, often like do you completely move out of one you know glaciated you know drainage and go up and over the top and go into a completely different drainage? Is that fairly uncommon? And it's more common to travel up and down and kind of at the mouth at all all the different canyons. Or do you on these backpack hunts do a lot of times you just go up all the way to the top and all the way down off the other side into a completely different valley? No, for the most part, you're just you're staying low and you're just following the valley bottom and just glassing up all the little drainages as you go. Or the way I do it, you know, I'll follow the main drainage 
and then plan on going up each side drainage, you know, each different day, checking them out if they're worth my time, you know, if they're big enough, um, and, and go from there. But uh, very rarely will you go up and over a huge mountain pass unless for some reason, you know, we know we have to get from A to B, and that's the only option. Um, and it, usually right. that's only if you've, you've exhausted every other avenue in that area. Let's take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors. Guys, I'm excited about one of the new sponsors of the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Canyon Coolers is based right here in Arizona and makes premium roto-molded ice chests that work. The Outfitter Series coolers are made with near-vertical exterior walls to fit snugly into tightly packed hunting rigs without a lot of wasted space. They come at a fraction of the cost of some of the big-name brands. Canyon Coolers is a small operation. If you have a question, if you have a problem... You can pick up the phone and talk to a human being, not an answering service. Canyon Coolers offers the industry's only Vortex-like warranty, which is completely no-fault, no-hassle warranty for as long as you own the cooler. How can you beat that? It's literally the last ice chest you'll ever need to buy. Just for the J. Scott Outdoors podcast listeners, you save 10%. All you got to do is go to canyoncoolers.com and enter the J. Scott promo code at checkout, and you're going to get a 10% discount. Okay, guys, I want to tell you about one of the new sponsors at the J. Scott Outdoors podcast, and I'm excited to tell you about this awesome team of dynamic realtors that I know very well. Dar Colburn, who has been my hunting and guiding partner for over 20 years, has partnered up with my nephew, Jay Pyburn, to create the Colburn Pyburn team. If you're looking to buy or sell any real estate in the state of Arizona, you can't go wrong with the Colburn Pyburn team. Dara and I have been in the real estate business for over 20 years together. And my nephew Jay is an up-and-coming realtor that has many sales under his belt and, and is a phenomenal resource for any person looking to buy or sell real estate in the state of Arizona. Just for the J. Scott Outdoors podcast listeners, if you have any real estate needs at all, if you use the Colburn Pyburn team, you're going to get a $500 gift certificate from any retail shop of your liking. Kuyu, Outdoorsman's, Sportsman's Warehouse, Cabela's, Amazon, you name it. $500. If you use the Colburn Pyburn team and they sell one of your properties that you either buy or sell, you get a $500 gift certificate. All you got to do is send an email to colburnpyburnteam at gmail.com and get your real estate needs taken care of. That's C-O-L-B-U-R-N-P-Y-B-U-R-N team, colburnpyburnteam at gmail.com. I want to thank the outdoorsmans.com for their sponsorship of my podcast. I want to let you guys know they are the optics authority. And if you're looking for any binoculars, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, make sure to get a hold of the guys at the Outdoorsman's. If you use the J. Scott promo code, you get a 10% discount on all Outdoorsman's products. Go to outdoorsmans.com or you can call them at 1-800-291-8065. Okay, um, Ben, one of the questions, um, and I've asked pretty much everybody this, so the listeners are probably getting sick of me asking. I obviously have the first hunt. Um, from From what you've heard or what have you, is this year average as far as rainfall, you know, dry hot wet moist like is it just a normal year 
Are the rivers going to be raging, or you know, what 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 conditions will I be facing as far as you know in the glaciated valleys? Will the rivers be at maximum capacity and just ripping, or as you know, they've had you know lots of runoff, or what's the deal? Uh, no, I think it's a pretty average year for the most part. I talked to Tavis yesterday, and he said he just flew into base camp, checked things out. Everything's looking great. Um, the vegetation is phenomenal out there. Rivers look normal. Um, so it, it, sh- it should be pretty pretty average for the most part. I wouldn't worry about high water. Um, but, I mean, it can change quick, too. We could get a massive thunderstorm that lasts for the next week. That'll definitely raise the water up. So it, it's play it by ear, but um, nope, nothing to be concerned about right now. Everything looks, looks okay. pretty good. And then how do you and how do most of the clients handle the creek crossings? You know, people have said, we'll take crocs. Some people have said, you know, take the gators and the waders, and if you cross fast enough, you won't get wet. Some people are saying, you know, take those wiggy waders that, you know, go over the top of your boots and you can keep everything on. What do you find, you know, well, my first question is, how much of the time are you constantly crossing rivers? And how much of the mm-hmm. time do you actually need to strip down and go to, like, Crocs and, like, it's, you know, above the knee and, you know, you're going to get wet? Or is it mostly right. just, you know, small little stuff? No, for the most part, it's all small little stuff. Um, the main drainage you're in, the big valley, you may have to cross to the other side. And, I mean, that, that creek or small river could be, you know, knee height. It shouldn't be any higher than that, to be honest with you. Um, which is nothing. I mean, the rocks might be a little slick, but as long as you shuffle your feet through, don't try to lift your foot up and out of the water and put it down again. Just shuffle. You'll be good to go. Um, <clears throat> and I guess the only the only other time you'd be crossing creeks is if you're in a tight canyon heading up. Um, but usually those, if you have good boots and gaiters, you can just hop right across and you'll stay dry. Not a problem. Okay. But if, if, you're, if you're crossing the the more major creeks or rivers, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I leave the wiggy waders at home. I would not bring them at all. I've used them for angling horses throughout the years, and uh, they're just, they're a hazard, to be honest with you. They take way longer to put on, take off. Uh, it's just an extra thing to pack. It's, it's not worth your time. So what, what okay. we do up there, we, just, we pack a set of, uh, of Crocs, so which doubles as a set of camp shoes at the end of the day. It's awesome. You get, get a chance to let your feet breathe. And then just, you know, either take your pants right off or if the, the creek isn't too deep, just roll them right up and just go, go across with, uh, with your boots and socks off and the Crocs on. And it's a great excuse to wash your feet too. Usually by the time you get to that creek crossing, you've been walking for quite a ways and your feet are hot and they, you know, they may be ready to blister, who knows. So getting in that cold water, it's one of the best feelings on the planet when your feet are hot like that. So just go with the Crocs and just, you know, go in bare feet. It's great. Okay, good stuff. Um, in, in general, so you're staying down low, you're kind of bouncing around, maybe moving camp every couple of days or what have you. Um, I talked to Travis Weist. Uh, him and his brother Brad went last year, and Travis said, like, Almost every single night, they had a you know they had enough driftwood and stuff that they built a fire almost every night. Is that common or uncommon? No, that's pretty common. Every single night, I'll pretty well have a fire if there's enough driftwood around. Like even if you're in a super high 
mountain valley or, or basin, there's usually enough old dead willows and stuff around that are dry that you can have a little fire and sit around it and relax and eat in your mountain house. It's, uh, it's the way to go for sure. And I wouldn't worry about the fire smoke as a scent. I mean, it's, that's pretty crazy to think that the animals would worry about, you know, a smoke smell. There's natural fires up in that country every single year. So those animals smell it, you know, every single year of their life. So it's not something to be worried about scent, scent control-wise. Okay, and then uh, going on this first hunt, uh, I've had guys say most of the rams will be super, super high, um, but they'll be out in the open. A lot of them will be, you know, very visible. Um, they may be tough to get to. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, for the most part, if, if the weather is warm like it usually is this first hunt, those rams will be right at the top trying to catch as much of the breeze as they can. Um, you know, they'll also be in the rocks, you know, trying to soak up the cooler cooler rock um, as well um, and just get away from the bugs, right? So it, it can definitely be a little bit more challenging because they'll be higher. But as far as spotting them is concerned, they should be easier to find because they will be so high. Okay. Uh, in general, obviously, it's general terms, um, and I, I know it, it might be putting you on the spot, but typically, do you, do, I mean, are you seeing, you know, legal rams, and I know it's different on every single situation, but I mean, is it pretty common that you're going to see on a 10-day hunt, you know, a legal ram every other day type of thing? Or, or yeah, for a sure. legal ram every I day? Mean, I mean, it depends what you consider legal, because legal in the NWT is a three-quarter curl, right? Which is something that we don't even look at unless it's right. broomed warrior, right? That's busted off. Right, but, right, um, right. If you're, if you're talking about, you know, legal, you know, eight years old plus full curl type ram. Um, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say every single day, but I think every second day for sure, you should find a ram of that caliber. And every third day, you should find a ram that's, you know, worthy of shooting, whether he's old enough or, or long enough to shoot, um, for sure within three days. And if you're not, I mean, get out of that area and move on to somewhere else because there should be sheep like that in pretty well every area you're going to. Okay. And then if you're seeing lots of lambs and ewes, is that an indication to you, like, we need to move and get out of here because all we're seeing is lambs and you? I mean, are there any tricks like that that you usually you know, as a guide, um, you know, things that you see are like, man, we need to move because this is what we're seeing and we need to, we need to find different stuff. Uh, again, depending on the area, but I mean, if you're finding only using lambs and it, it's, you know, big, gentle, rolling green slopes, probably you're in a nursery, you know, where they're, they've had those lambs and they're hanging out for, for good vegetation and, and protection and the rams probably won't be there. But, you know, throughout the years too, I've uh, usually at least once per year, I've looked at a huge group of ewes and lambs and thought, oh yeah, there's nothing in there. And I've thought about not putting my scope on it and then decided to have better judgment. And when I do, there's one big old ram mixed in with a bunch. You know, that's that big old warrior that's, you know, maybe been kicked out of the group or just doesn't care to be with the other rams. He's just living on his own. And he's in that area that day because it's extra eyeballs watching out for his back. So he's with the, the females and the babies, right? So right. no matter what, definitely scan that group of ewes and lambs because it, something might surprise you. 
and some of the biggest sheep I've ever found in the North Country have been hanging out with with the ewes and lambs. Okay, interesting. Um, when when do the doll sheep rut? By the way, uh, it'll be in October, October November. Um, okay. So you you won't you won't hit it obviously during your hunt, but right. you'll uh, you'll experience lots of bachelor groups of, of rams together. So that should be exciting. Okay, and as a general rule of thumb, you're working your way up or down a valley, and you're kind of glassing, you know, big country. Like, do you start at the top always? I mean, is there certain, like, you look for green grass, do you look for rot? Like, is there any one thing that you could say, hey, when, you, when you're scanning, like, first place you should look is where? Yeah, usually for, for big rams, you, you know, you look in the very back of the basins, and you try to find that, little green pinnacle that doesn't look like much but it's the one little random green spot mixed among the big boulder field or you know uh, a small little green patch somewhere else and that's usually where these rams will be hanging out um and if that's the first thing i'll check and if for some reason there's there's nothing on those locations you know that ram could have been there and might be just on the move to his next green patch to feed so i just start doing a grid pattern pattern um, up and down the whole valley and across and just methodically pick my way through that entire place. Okay. Um, and then when, well, house in general mature, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, you know, mature rams, uh, how spooky are they? Like if you're all the way down at the bottom, like, do they have you pegged already most of the time, or how does that work as far as, you know, are they super aware of everything that's going on, or can you, you know, spot them and, you know, usually sneak right up on them? Uh, it depends how far away you are, but if, if they're on the mountain right next to you, um, generally they will know you're there by the time you see them, you know, if you've been moving around in the valley bottom at all. Um, and it's usually not the big old rams that are looking at you if they're with other younger rams. It's those young rams that will pin you down, and they're the alert ones. They're the ones that are going, holy crap, what is that thing moving down there? And they're looking at the big boss that's sleeping over there chewing his cud. And, uh, you know, if, if the big ram's not alert, if he's looking away and the little one has you pinned, you know, just keep moving in. And usually, you know, as long as the big guy doesn't freak out and realize that you're there, you're still good to go, moving cautiously, of course. But they're definitely worried. Um, you know, probably they're not as cagey as the Rams on, on Tiburon or, you know, down in Mexico, for example. But uh, they're on the ball, right? That's how they've gotten so big and so old. Yeah, that's uh, I'm excited for that aspect of it. Um, and then how often, like, okay, so I've heard it's going to be pretty much light the whole time that I'm there. I mean, is that 100% like mm -hmm. no flashlight? Like, I mean, it's going to be light the whole time. Uh, basically, I mean, when people say light 24 hours a day, I mean, you'll have twilight from 3 a.m. to 4.30 a.m. So there's an hour and a half in the middle there where you don't need a flashlight. You can still get around with your own two eyes, and you probably, I mean, legally you're not allowed to, but you still could shoot in that light. That's how bright it is. Um, but other than so that, it's almost yeah, like I, it's almost like at first light, like daylight in the morning, like it's dark. It's pretty dark, but you can still see type of thing. Oh yeah, for sure. I wouldn't even okay. I wouldn't come close to calling it dark. Um, yeah, okay. it's gonna blow your mind how bright it is up there all day long. And is it common to just I mean hunt just just never stop, 
or that like the guides are done it enough that they know that you got to you know go for 10 or 12 hours and then rest up a little bit i mean how i guess every guide is different but what's your thoughts on that yeah no everybody is pretty good about it nobody nobody's crazy and just keeps hunting and hunting because i mean legally you're not allowed to you have to stop within a certain amount of that twilight factor but um you know usually guys will go till 10 11 at night kind of thing and then set up camp from that location you can just keep glassing right there's no point moving anymore and just you'll have supper go to bed and you know you'll get up whenever you want to get up but a lot of guys get up between six to eight depending because usually every day you're you're putting quite a few miles on and you're pretty tired so uh you know as the hunt goes on you're gonna want to sleep in that extra hour you know and wake up a little later so everybody knows and it's a long season for us too right so they 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 pace themselves and they're not going to kill you so don't worry about that (laughs) that's good stuff um obviously the mountain caribou um the only thing that's open when i'm up there is doll sheep I'm, i'm excited hopefully we'll see some caribou is a pretty good chance that i mean most everywhere you go you at least see some caribou you should, yeah. And the caribou are going to do the same things as the sheep. They'll be up high as well. Same thing, getting away from the bugs and the breeze. And for caribou, um, look in those back valley basins as well, you know, in the rocks, um, up against cliff faces, that kind of thing where they're kind of in the shade or on the big ice packs that are still still around that haven't melted yet. Pretty well guaranteed that if you find a big patch of snow somewhere, there's going to be caribou on it. So you should have fun spotting them. It'll be cool. Okay, let's talk about the bugs on the first hunt, with it being warm and what have you. Um, is is a I do have a face net packed. Is is that something that people bring and then never wear, or do a lot of the hunters wear them? You know, most guys don't bring them, but I think they're crazy not to. Every year is totally different, but I've seen some years where there's zero bugs on this first hunt, and some some years where you're just going nuts sitting there trying to swat them away so definitely bring one for sure i bring one and i I carry two actually one for myself and my client if he doesn't have one and uh it'll save your life you'll be happy to have it what about bug spray do you actually wear uh wear that and will tavis have any of that there or should we bring it uh i don't think tavis probably has a little bit but probably not enough to go around for everybody so definitely bring a bottle for yourself um and i would bring one for sure yep and would you go with the 99 percent deep you know we we can't buy that in canada so i never use it the 30 percent is good enough um it, whatever you're going to do i would try to get the you know the lotion or or just be careful how you spray it on because if you spray that stuff on your you know your rain gear it's going to damage those fibers right so just be careful where you put it on your body okay Okay. Uh, this is all great stuff. Oh, I've been told that Tavis does a five-day food drop. Is that customary and common and something to, like, I've got all my food, and I was planning to pack, you know, probably six days' worth of food and then have a whole other bag with all my stuff where all he has to do is drop that bag. Is that something that he will do or or? I mean, I've heard he drops apple pies and cookies and all that stuff, but if I ask him to drop, will he drop my other bag? Yeah, for sure. He'll he'll let you know at the start of your hunt what what the plan is. Sometimes we do pack all 10 days' worth of food, 
um, just depending on the location we're getting into because it may be hard for him to find us, you know, while we're hunting. Uh, you okay. know, we can try to explain it, but sometimes it's difficult. So he'll he'll let you know. But in general, every single hunt, he usually drops a pie, some cookies, that kind of stuff, and he will drop your extra food as well. So yeah, I, in general, plan on a five sixty uh, amount of food, and then the rest he'll he'll bring to you, which is pretty nice. Okay. Uh, you talked about airstrips, and you talked about most of the location where there's airstrips. It's because something has been harvested there. I mean, like, what are we talking? Are we talking like a hundred different airstrips all throughout the concession, or more than? I mean, like fifty or two hundred, or what are we talking? No, I mean we're probably talking, you know, forty to fifty max throughout the whole okay. area. And the whole area, I mean, it's about ten thousand square miles. So, you think about that. There's not that many places you can actually build a good enough airstrip to, to land a plane in and out of, right? Um, so, yeah, there's not that many. So wherever you land, your guide will have a plan and say, okay, you know, we're, we're starting here, we're going to hunt all these drainages, and on the way, uh, hopefully find a ram. And if we don't, we'll go over to this one, and if we kill one here, then we'll fly out of this airstrip. So there will always be, you know, a method to the madness, even though sometimes it seems like you're just walking willy-nilly through the mountains. <laughs> from a standpoint of just looking at it from a you know just a safety standpoint what have you obviously nothing's going to happen to your guide or anything like that but i mean is it is it common to like you know for a hunter to like mark on the gps like this is the airstrip and obviously i'll have my own sat phone but i mean is that something that if you were going hunting you know there's you never have a problem with your guy, but if there was ever some major catastrophe, is it good that the hunter kind of knows, like, I can get back to this place and this is, you know, I could always call Tabith and say, get me right here? Or is that absolutely. way, way overkill? No, no, absolutely. And your guide will have maps. Most of us have inreaches now, and all of us will have a satellite phone. So every two to three days, we'll be in contact with Tavis. And we'll say, okay, you know, this is what we're seeing. This is where we're at now. It's how the hunt is going. This is the weather at our location, just in case he's flying somewhere nearby. So there, we'll always update base camp. And, I mean, with my inReach, pretty well every single day, I'm sending my location and my update to Tavis. So I know with you being a bit of a gear nut, you probably have an inReach as well, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if, if you do, I mean, that's perfect. You can you can get Tavis's, uh, his his address and you can be sending him your location as well. So it's just a peace of mind yeah. and it's something we all yeah. do for safety for sure. Okay. Good stuff. Let's talk a little bit about, um, I've never seen a doll sheep in my life. So, you know, total, total newbie, but, um, awesome. I've looked at a lot, of, I've looked at a lot of bighorns, you know, what are things that jump out at you? Like when you're down in the valley and you're looking, you know, long ways away and you immediately, like, what would be where you're like, this is a good one. We need to get a, you know, like, we need to really look at this one. What jumps out at you? What do you, what do you, what are some of your indicators that this is a ram that we need to look at? The biggest thing is body size. I mean, from, from really great distances, you can't tell the difference between a, you know, a young ram or a you, right? So if they're all kind of slim and slender bodied, then it's probably nothing worth looking at. Whereas those big, 
old rams will all have a big pot belly on them unless they're starving to death of course but that's pretty rare um so just look for yeah look for big big body and that's that's my first indicator and once i do that i mean i'll put the scope and everything on it and you know if you see dark chocolate horns it's usually a, a bigger older ram right that's been rubbing his horns for many many years on the alders of the willow um you know deep curl obviously is is a major one you're looking for the size of the curl you know how big the ball would be that you could stick in between in the middle of his, his of his horn curl um and obviously everybody's looking for you know a, a magic 40 inch ram or this full curl um sheep um so you're looking for tips that are crossing the bridge of his nose right um just anything like that it's mass is pretty hard to tell from from long distances so uh, you, you can't focus on that so much. Um, uh, but usually, you know, if you find a, a sheep a long ways away that looks like it has a really big body on it and it's all by itself, that's a sheep worth going after because it's probably 10, 11, 12 years old plus, And he's one of those rams that isn't with anybody else. It's only one set of eyes that's, you know, going to pin you down while you're stalking in close. And it's probably a giant, you know, it's, it's an old warrior that's definitely worth harvesting. So that's the key thing I'm looking for, is those lone big rams. Last year, um, Arctic Red had a, a really bang up, a real, real good year. And from what I understand, that was just a really good um, crop of lambs, obviously, 10 years ago. How do you anticipate this season going with last year going so well? Like, is there any part be, of you that's like, you know, oh, they had such a good year, there might be a letdown this year overall, or just as good? No, you know, last year was the best year I've ever seen uh, anywhere in the North Country, and Tavis said the same. Since since 1998, I think, was the last year they had a season like that, um, which, you know, is whatever, 10, 20 years ago, whatever that is. Um, but, yeah, the amount of Rams that we passed up because we were shooting those big 40-inch-plus rams, those 12-, 13-year-old sheep, the amount that we passed up that were incredible sheep that were, you know, even 9 or 10 years old, uh, those rams should be around this year. They were healthy. They were fighting. They were awesome. A lot of, We passed up a lot of 40-inch rams that were 8 or 9 years old, which sounds crazy for most people, but those are the rams that are going to be 41, 42, 43 this year. So... From what I saw last year, there should be an, another incredible season up there with an, a, a bunch of big rams taken again. So it's a good year to come. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Um, let's talk a little bit about that because it's, you know, I've guided a lot of hunters and what have you, and everybody has different expectations. And you've got, you know, usually one group of hunter that's like, I'm coming, I, I have to leave with, with a sheep. Like, I, I you know whether it's I spent this money or da-da-da-da-da, like that they want to get one. How often yep. or what percentage? And then the other part is maybe guys that have shot several doll sheep and, like, they're looking for a specific ram uh, or, you know, they're looking for 10, 11, 12, you know, oldest ram they can find. What yep. would be the balance as far as how many people that come to Arctic Red, would you say, are in the category of I have to leave with a sheep? And then how many are, like, I just, you know, I want to experience it, and I'd like to shoot an old, mature, you know, big ram if I can, but it's okay if I don't. Like, what's the percentage breakdown that you see coming to Arctic Red? 
You know, it's probably about 50-50, to be honest with you. I'd say half the guys that come are brand new, never killed a doll sheep, or maybe killed a different sheep, but never a doll or done a North Country hunt. And, and they're just looking for a good, respectable trophy um, or representative. And then the other half are the diehards that, that know Arctic Red has big rams. You know, that they may, they may have to work hard for it to find that big ram that they want um, and pass up many on the journey getting there, but that they will eventually harvest that big ram. So, yeah, 50-50. You know, quite a few of the guys are pretty hardcore and they want to want to hunt hard and they will pass up a lot of sheep and some of these guys might go home empty hand like you know tom foss he's come up multiple times and um he hunts hard and he wants a big sheep and he's not scared to pass up a lot of really really good rams in order to get that so he's been there multiple times and that's happened to him which is awesome you know that's that's those are the guys we really enjoy hunting with you know and, and same with the guys that just want a respectable trophy you know but we're not going to shoot something small we're not going to shoot something young, no matter what. It has to be an Arctic Red caliber sheep, you know, which is 10 years old minimum. And, you know, it, it has to be worthy of of that person coming all that way, spending all that money, and we want them to go home happy with it, right? So, um, yeah, we're going to work our butts off to find you the best sheep we can. Yeah, that's awesome. Is, is it really uncommon to find a 10-year-old ram that you, as a guide, are going to be like, and let's say you have one of the guys that, you know, just wants to shoot something exceptional. Is it, would it be completely rare for you to find a 10-year-old that you yourself as a guide aren't just going, we need to shoot this ram, like, and then someone wants to walk away from it? Or is it most of the time, you know, when you get to 10 years old, like the hunter's just drooling over himself to shoot it? Guys, I want to tell you about one of the new sponsors of the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Since 1992, Herky Jerky has been committed to providing the highest quality beef, buffalo, elk, venison, turkey, and bacon snacks to their customers. Their award-winning jerky and meat sticks are high in protein, low in fat, and carbs, and are the perfect choice for hunters, anglers, boaters, campers, outdoorsmen, or anyone searching for a quick, healthy snack. All Herky Jerky products are proudly made in the USA with top-quality ingredients. When herky-jerky meat sticks and jerky arrives at your front door, you can be confident that they will be the freshest you've ever tasted. Your satisfaction is guaranteed. Jerky has been the fastest growing snack in the country for the last four years, and while there are many brands to choose from, Herky Jerky is one of the only companies out there that can combine two things. Great taste and size. The great taste will speak for itself when you try it, but the large quantity, bulk size packs is something unique to Herky Jerky. Most of my listeners have probably tried a few different kinds of store-bought jerky, and if you're like me, you're always disappointed that most of the bags you pick up at the grocery store or gas station are in, in these little wimpy mamby pamby three or four ounce bags a couple of handfuls and you're basically finished with the bag what i love about herky jerky is that everything they sell is in bulk each pack is anywhere from 12 and a half ounces to one and a half pounds so when you go out on hunts you have enough to last your whole trip when you go to the herky jerky website you'll see that the prices are probably a little more than you're used to from jerky but the value is there considering how much you're getting in each pack you get as much in a couple of their big packs as you would in 10 packs of store-bought jerky herky jerky's product lineup can be broken down into two groups jerky and meat sticks there are 10 different kinds of jerky and seven varieties of meat sticks all of them are delicious the game jerky and sticks consist of venison hot venison buffalo and elk first of all 
I haven't seen a lot of companies that offer game jerky in bulk, especially in the sticks, and I certainly haven't tasted anything as good as theirs. The jerky has a nice consistency to it without being too hard on the teeth and it's not overly gamey. The sticks are really unique. Don't think of Slim Jims because that doesn't do them justice. They have the right amount of snap to them and they aren't filled with byproducts and they have just the perfect taste. HerkyJerky.com is doing a special for the month of July and it's a generous $10 off any order of $50 or more and it includes free shipping. All you got to do is use the J. Scott promo code at checkout. Go to HerkyJerky.com now and check them out. That's H-E-R-K-Y Jerky.com. Guys, I want to thank Kuyu.com, that's K-U-I-U.com, for their sponsorship of this podcast. And Kuyu Ultralight Hunting makes the best ultralight hunting products on the market today. From items like the Peloton 240 Full Zip Hoodie, the Chugach NX Rain Jacket, and the Super Down Ultra Jacket, which will be going on my hunts to the Northwest Territories here soon. If you're talking about Kuyu pants, some of the pants that I like are the Guide Pant. That's for colder weather hunts, like down in January on my coos deer hunts. You've got the Tiburon pant for the warm season hunts. That's got the air dock technology where it breathes really well. You've got the attack pant, which is probably their number one selling pant. You've got their new pro pant, which is their all season, all terrain hunting pant with a new quiet ultra suede foam line knee pad. It has four way stretch. It only weighs 19.6 ounces. It's got the Torre DWR water repellency. It's got the Torre make spec for odor control. Kuyu's rain gear is the best on the market in my opinion. I routinely wear the Chugach NX rain pant and rain jacket. Uh, I also have worn on some of the lower 48 hunts the Ultra NX rain pant and jacket. Some of the other pieces you've got to check out are the Peloton, which is their synthetic version, either the 130 zip-off bottoms or the 200 zip-off bottoms. They also make them in a 145 merino wool or a 210 zip-off bottom merino wool. These are so convenient. You can leave your boots on. You just drop your pants, unzip your long underwear, and you're off and running again. Another amazing product are the Tiburon shorts. If you see any of the pictures of me in the summer on my Instagram account, 99.9% of the summer I'm wearing Tiburon shorts on all my hiking, all my fishing excursions. It's got the Air Air Dot technology. Uh, They breathe really well. They're very well fitted, and uh, you guys should check them out. The Tiburon short, fantastic product from Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Kuyu has an amazing selection of products from jackets and vests, pants and shorts, shirts and tops, footwear, accessories, lifestyle apparel. They have a wide range of packs from the Icon Pro to the Ultra, the sleep system, the Kuyu sleeping bag I use on all my hunts, and then the, the tents, the Mountain Star two-person tent, the Storm Star tent, just phenomenal gear. Make sure to go to Kuyu, that's K-U-I-U.com, and check out all of the phenomenal gear that they provide. No, you know, a, a lot of Rams that are that are 10 years old, they're going to be your average Ram, light, right? Like 36, 36 and a half, maybe 35 um, inches long. So we pass up a lot of 10-year-olds still in, in the hope of finding a 10-year-old that's 38 plus, right? Um, so definitely, you know, there's not a lot of times where I'm saying you need to shoot that Ram when a client doesn't. I, that's, I don't know if that's ever happened to me, actually. Um, yeah, but with some some people might for sure, you know. 
but definitely if if you if you were guiding someone like me and I was like and you're like this is a 10 year old he's a dang nice ram um and you know in your heart like man we're probably not going to find this is like it's almost as good as it gets you would say as a guide like Jay you know we've looked at a lot of rams but this one is a special one like you you need to think long and hard about this because you know, and I do the same thing with coos deer or the sheep hunts that I guide. Like, they rely on me to say, hey, what would you do? Like, you know, you know I want a good one. You know, the chances yep. of finding something better, and I'll be like, man, we're looking at like a, you know, 115 coos deer buck. Like, you know, we could go this whole next week and never see anything like this. Like, this is a hard one. Like, is that common for you to be in that predicament as a guide? Yeah for sure every single hunt usually you're kind of in that predicament and you just you just as you know you just have to base it off their their ability and the area and whether you think you will find something better or not i mean if i was guiding you on this first hunt and we found a 10 year old 37 inch ram on day one we'd pass it up we'd just keep going and we'd we'd look for a bigger one and you know we may end up coming back and trying to find that ram on day nine who knows but with someone who's fit and someone who has it in their head to keep looking, to keep finding that bigger sheep and is willing to put the effort in, uh, we love that. We love trying to find the okay. bigger sheep and the older ram. Okay. Interesting. That, that, I like to hear that. Um, and not that I, you know, I'm not that, you know, I've been, not that I'm a, some trophy snob or whatever, but, you know, I'd like to get a good one. And I can go home without a ram. Like, I, I you know... I'm not one of the guys that, like, have to check it off my list and be like, yep, I've got a doll sheep shot, like, you know. And, and I yep. also have the fortune of having two doll sheep hunts, so the likelihood is I'm probably going to yeah. get at least one ram, you know. And if I don't get, if I get, if I go over on both hunts, it's fine, too. Like, it's not, um, I'm going to enjoy it. If I get a great ram, that's, that's fantastic. If I don't, that's fine, too. Uh, nice. I'm just excited. I'm excited to go. Let's see. Um, I think we've covered a bunch of stuff here. Anything else that's jumping out at you? And and a lot of this is, you know, me wanting to know the answers, but I, a lot of the listeners get a lot of value. They're going on hunts either with Arctic Red. There's actually been a handful of guys that are going with Arctic Red this year, and there's other guys going with other outfits. I think people hear all this talk and you know it helps them in their mind you know figuring their hunt and just kind of get them pumped for the hunt as well anything yeah anything else that you think we're missing that we need to talk about you know i i think the big thing is that you know you guys are spending a lot of money to come on these hunts and you're, you're getting in shape and you're you're doing all you can to get prepared you're getting the right gear for the job and you're you're still concerned about whether or not you may, it may happen or may not. Right. So I think the biggest thing that everybody needs to do is just to, to get up there, enjoy themselves. You're in God's country. I mean, that's, that's the best country on the planet. It's the most remote areas you can get to now and just, just enjoy the experience and and take it all in. And it's going to come to you. I mean, the guys that usually push themselves and go crazy and just want to run nonstop while they're up there, those are the guys that seem like they, they don't enjoy it, even if they kill a sheep, just because they, uh, you know, they, they just burn themselves out. So some of the best advice I was ever given was actually from Tavis. And it, it may sound bizarre, but it was my first season at Arctic Red. 
um, I got I got flown from the horses to a caribou hunt, and from the caribou hunt went to base camp for one night that whole season. And uh, Gavison and I stayed up late that night, and we were talking, and you know he he was saying how you know he wishes that everybody could just slow down a little bit and, and enjoy it, and if if we could everybody should cook pancakes, you know what, which is, seems ridiculous on a backpack hunt because you don't have a, a griddle and pancake batter and all that stuff. But you know what, if everybody could carry that stuff and you had to sit there each morning and cook pancakes and just chill out, you would probably see a ram that you would otherwise miss, right? A ram that you would yeah. just walk by because you're not sitting there glassing. So his advice yeah. was just to slow down, right, and enjoy it. And uh, I've done that since that conversation, and uh, it's paid off many many times so i don't stress out anymore you know i know what the country has to offer and uh just take your time and it's it's going to happen for sure that's awesome um that's fantastic i want to talk a little bit about um arcadia outfitting your business that you purchased what about a year ago yeah last june 20th actually it's kind of ironic the certificate transfer for the outfit we've, we officially owned it on my birthday uh, last year, That's awesome. which was That's awesome. awesome. It's a good birthday present. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about, so what you guys hunt and how it works out. Obviously you're on Arctic red this year. Um, you missed out on, you know, the, the big ride in and all of that, but you're going to do some hunts at Arctic red. And then when do your hunts yeah. like kick off and how, how does your hunt structure talk a little bit about all of your operation? Right. You bet. So, with Arcadia now, we're pretty much uh, year-round. We're not just seasonal like Arctic Red is up up north in the summer and fall. So our, uh, I'm I'm out right now still because I actually have a wedding to go to for my best buddy. But um, I just finished my bear season as well. Uh, we it was our first year, obviously, of operation, and the area hadn't been hunted for the last eight years by the outfitter that owned it because he had a Vancouver Island outfit. Um, and it just wasn't worth his time to, to hunt in that location because those hunts are worth so much more on the island. So it was uh, it was cool getting out there, finding all those big color phase bears that hadn't been hunted for eight years. Um, wicked population. Um, so we just spent the last two months doing that for fun, you know, April 30th till June 30th. Um, had a great season. And, uh, you know, now I'm pretty well off. I'm just, I just finished building the trap line cabin. Uh, we're heading up there tomorrow to finish staining it, putting the, the last finishing touches to it, uh, my wife and I. And, uh, yeah, so I've been busy doing that, cutting trail, getting prepared for mule deer season, which uh, we'll be doing as soon as I get out of Arctic Red, uh, August 27th, um, which is the shortest season that I've ever had up north. It'll be a little, a little weird for me. Um, but I'm coming straight out to do a, a high country mule deer hunt with my buddy and then uh, go into my California bighorn hunts September 20th uh, and we have two tags this year um, awesome hunt really love it it's a nice change from Arctic Red you know it's it's a totally different sheep still super challenging um, awesome awesome hunting bighorn though I really love it and we go from the north country which is you know green and and uh, boggy and whatever else, right? It's pretty wild country down to Arcadia, which is on the Fraser River Valley, and it's there's sagebrush, there's cactus. It's uh, it's like high desert valley basically. It's it's really really neat. So it's a pretty drastic change from Arctic Red, but uh, we'll do the sheep hunt. You know, we'll tag those out, and then uh, continue with mule deer until December 10th. Um, we have a pretty long season, which is nice and some phenomenal mule deer in there 
in there as well that again haven't been hunted for forever by the uh, the outfitter he he was a big big time deer hunter for himself so he would literally take those months off just to go search for a big mule deer and, and whitetail for himself which worked great for me you know now that the area hasn't been hunted for forever so we're looking to forward to seeing and are them. those hunts horseback hunts or are you hunting out of a out of a cabin type situation you know with atvs or, or trucks or vehicles or what yeah it's a bit of a mix depending on ability um where my obviously choice is the the high country horseback hunt for the mule deer you know it allows us to get into areas that haven't been hunted that other people can't access otherwise by foot which is pretty far off right so um that we'll be doing a couple of those this year and as well we're doing some just some high alpine backpack stuff just like arctic red you know earlier in the season um with some archery guys and some rifle and then uh, we also have, for, for guys that aren't quite as, as fit, we do, you know, our, our base camp hunt with, with truck and ATV for kind of the later season stuff where, uh, you know, horses wouldn't be great because there's, there's not as much feed left, you know, late November, early December. Um, and you want a comfortable camp as well, right? So we'll just, yeah, we'll use ATVs and trucks to get around for that. But, uh, I assume those, good. Late, those late mule deer hunts, I assume you get, get some rutting activity and rutting action on those hunts absolutely yeah like mid-november on um it's crazy up there there's deer running everywhere and you know there's usually a good skiff of snow on the ground by then so you can track them quite a ways and it's open enough country that you can sit on the mountain eating glass just like arctic red you know there's timber obviously but you can spot your big mule deer in the burns and areas like that and and go after them so it's really exciting um, and a lot of fun. And those big bucks move down late in the season like that. So it's, uh, you know, most people head home at that time of the year because the weather's miserable. That's when we're going to stay out there and we're going to end up shooting those those giants because everyone else is gone. And what province is Arcadia in? Like, where are you at? Uh, British Columbia. So we're, we're okay, southern British you. Columbia. Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, the mule deer, as far as your high country hunts, um what kind of caliber if you were rifle hunting high country mule deer like what caliber and then uh is that the same or does the caliber of bucks change on those later um november and early december hunts when the, the rut might be going what kind of quality caliber bucks are you shooting yeah i'd say early on like if you see a 170 to 180 class that's that's a pretty darn good good deer to be shooting you know september early october and then when the rut starts you know we're this is obviously all a little bit up in the air because it's it will be testing ground a little bit but um you know we've we've heard of 200 inch deer taken out of there the previous outfitter that before the guy i bought from he used to take out 180 plus bucks every single hunt with his horses um during the rut so it's uh we're really looking forward to finding these big deer but they're we were definitely going to be holding out for 180 plus for sure cool it sounds like there's a little bit of a learning curve but that's half the fun of it is getting in you know some of that stuff that sounds like it's been left alone for quite a while and you can get in there and um you know it, that's half the adventure of just kind of figuring it out and and you'll probably learn as you yeah. go but i mean probably having the opportunity to shoot some of those there's probably some old bucks in there that um you, you know it's one of those things i know that when you're starting out in an outfitting business you know, you, sometimes you don't have a lot of photos and such to say, yeah, we shot this, we shot this, we shot this, but sometimes that's some of the best opportunity for, you know, finding some mm -hmm. of those bucks that, um, you know, haven't been hunted in a while, so that's pretty cool. 
Um, so you yep. finish up with the mule deer in December, and then and then uh, do you keep right on hunting, or, or is it then you wait till bear season in the spring? Nope, we'll actually continue on. We might even start a little earlier, but our uh, our cat season starts the end of November, um, and depending on how the snow conditions are, we might just continue on right into cat season. You know, do a couple lynx, bobcat hunts, some cougar here and there, and that'll bring us right till the next spring, right till uh, basically the start of March. So we're we're pretty darn busy all year round now, which is nice. You know, it's it's something I've wanted for 14 years to have this as a career, and it's full on, but it's it's really enjoyable, um, and it keeps us busy for sure. And it, you know, the cougar hunts for me, it's not something that I I did before. Um, so that as well was a learning curve and. You know, we took three cougar this year, one bobcat. Um, Chase went around with Tavis, actually a giant, but Tavis was pretty limited on time up there. And that cougar had killed a big mule deer up in uh, up in their winter range, and he never came out of the bush, and we couldn't get him. But um, some wicked cats out there. Um, again, it's an area that's pretty rugged, and residents don't get into to hunt. Um, so these cats get huge. I mean, there's a really good population of mule deer and sheep and moose out there so they, they they eat pretty well and it's our job to get out there and try to manage them a little bit because those cougar will follow the mule deer into the area it's a big migration route for them and uh, there's always new cats coming in and when they come in they'll usually stay there so we constantly it's a constant battle to try to manage that that population and take out you know a set amount of cougar each year to help the ungulates otherwise uh those cats do a lot of damage we uh we actually hunted one with donnie vincent this this winter he was up there and he did a you know he's gonna do a little little movie about it probably and he's got a bunch of photos on instagram from that hunt but uh the cat ended up crossing the road went down onto the river breaks and we tracked it through the river for for miles and miles uh just with our own two feet because there, it was too dangerous for the dogs to to run in um, and we ended up following him two days straight before we finally bumped him on a mule deer kill, a fresh mule deer kill. And he ran down into this nasty gully that was just straight cliff. Um, so we carefully wound our way down into that and then just chased him up and out of there for another couple miles before we could finally get the dogs on him. And uh, we managed to kill him. And we thought, you know, he was 170 pounds. We thought this is a giant cat. You know, he's got to be six plus years old minimum when we brought him to the biologist um they aged him at three so he's a 170 pound three-year-old cougar which blew my mind and donnie's a biologist as well and he just couldn't believe it that an animal could get that big in three years but the reason for it is we have such a good population of ungulates there and he was eating very very well i mean as we chased him through that canyon we found five other kills that were in there, um, a couple sheep and a couple deer. Um, most of them were deer, but uh, yeah, crazy to see. Super successful hunter, and the wolves were actually following him every single place he went because he was such a good hunter. Those wolves were actually getting lazy, and there was a big pack of them. We we saw them at Tavis. There were seven big black wolves. Um, they would just would chase him down and steal his kill. And he would just move on to the next one and kill another one. So these wolves just learned throughout the years, I guess three years, that, you know, this was a successful hunter and we're going to steal his kill from him because it's way easier than, than us chasing <laughs> it down ourselves. Crazy. Wow. Amazing. That is awesome. Yeah, that is incredible. Um, 
let's talk a little bit about uh, the BC Grizzly Bear Band. What I mean, were you just completely blindsided on that, and what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, it, it definitely surprised everybody, right? You know, we were pretty pretty hot and heavy into it there, and every outfitter in the industry definitely voted, and you know, we did our due diligence. But I think a lot of average hunters that didn't think anything of it, they thought, oh, you know, this is just another thing to vote on. Nothing's going to happen. Well, we screwed up, right? You know, the everyone else kind of banned up and they were a little more organized and, and they came out on top and it, it's, it's screwed a lot of families, a lot of outfitting families that really relied on that as their, you know, not main source of income, but a huge portion of it. I can think of multiple outfitters that are, uh, they're sweating bullets right now. And it's sad to see because it's, they went against complete science. You know, they went against the biologists stating facts and they just listened to their emotion and, they banned it for for what reason just to keep themselves happy and those the the population might see a boom for a couple years and as soon as that boom hits peak it's going to start going downhill and actually be much worse than it is right now with our conservation with with hunters putting money towards that grizzly bear um you know preserving habitat and preserving the species themselves and it's just it boggles everyone's mind that is involved in it because they don't, you know, we all say they're uneducated and they're ignorant and to a, a point they are, but I think people just, they don't, they just put blinders on and they don't want to listen and they don't want to believe, right? That killing that big male grizzly bear will actually save a couple of grizzly bear because that male is going to kill those cubs to get that sow back in heat. Right. Um, and people that, love bears they don't want to hear that 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 father would kill those cubs or whatever right it's just uh nature is cruel and it's it's part of the animal kingdom but i don't know i don't know how to educate people to actually make them see this and it's sad because it's it is going to go downhill for a little bit now and um uh, i don't know what's going to happen with it do you think from what you've heard i mean is that ever the grizzly bear ban in BC, is that ever something that can be overturned? You know, it's not looking very positive right now. Every, the organizations here, GOABC and others, SCI, you know, everyone's fighting pretty hard to try to get it back. Once something's gone, it's much harder to, to get it to return again. I mean, I don't think we're going to have a government that's going to be willing to support the grizzly bear hunt coming back which is the sad thing because the majority of the populace will say that they want it to stay away. You know, hunting is a small group of people. Even if you are a hunter, you know, a lot of people don't, uh, just don't realize. Um, so it's, I, I don't think it will, to be honest with you. We're hopeful and we're going to keep fighting, but in, in the next five years, definitely not. Maybe in the next 10 to 15, we have a slight hope, but, it's not, it's looking pretty grim right now, but we're going to keep fighting. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, that's, that's a bummer. Um, yeah. Wow. Well, you know, um, I think, I think what it will take, Jay, is, is, is people to finally, we need to put money forth to document what the grizzly bear populations do in 5, 10, 15 years. And when we see that decline in numbers or we see grizzly bears coming back into cities and getting in trouble and getting shot because they're a nuisance bear, 
I think people then might start to realize that hunting did play a, a key role in management, and then we may see a couple tags come back um, to manage the population. So hopefully. I think that's the, uh, the only thing that's going to happen, though. Yeah, wow. Well, man, we've covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate you spending time with us. Um, I want to give you a chance to let the listeners know. I'll also link it up in the show notes, but let the listeners know how they can get a hold of you, how they can hear more about you. So why don't you go ahead and uh, let them know that. Yeah, thanks, Jay. I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, the our outfit's name is Arcadia Outfitting. Um, we're on we're online. It's ArcadiaOutfitting.com. And, uh, you know, if you ever wanted to call and talk about any issues or any, uh, if you have interest in a sheep hunt, for example, with Arctic Red or with Midnight Sun or with whoever, and you just have questions, you can feel free to call or email as well. Um, and our, our contact info is on the website. Um, so feel free to find it on there. Again, ArcadiaOutfitting.com. And I'd be happy to answer any questions. Um, I've actually had a lot of guys do that throughout the years. And uh, I hope I've helped them a little bit. Uh, and hopefully I've helped you a little bit with a couple questions you had. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that drew me to um, kind of following you was I started watching those Arctic Red uh, videos that you posted online. And, you know, I like just kind of the raw, just showing it how it was. And um, it kind of, you know, I've watched all the videos and it's kind of given me a feel for what to expect. And I think that's, um, you know, kudos to you for, taking the time to do that and put that out there because I think people that are looking for hunts and what have you, they kind of want to see it, you know, with Instagram, with YouTube, with, you know, Facebook, with some of this different stuff, you know, websites. Um, it's nice to be able to see video form and kind of get a feel for the country and get a sense of, you know, how things are going as far as, you know, oh, well, we're struggling right now. I mean, you showed quite a bit of that in the videos. Um, so yeah. I encourage, uh, I'll link it up in the show notes but uh, your YouTube channel. Uh, uh, but that was one thing that I first started, you know, following and, and uh, kind of liked awesome. your style. So so I awesome. uh, appreciate your appreciate time. That. Hopefully I'll, I'll run into you at Arctic Red. Uh, if I don't, I'm sure we'll touch base um, when, you, when you get out, um, when you probably get back to BC, uh, getting ready for your mule deer hunts or what have you. So, Hopefully I see you. If I don't, um, God bless you, buddy. Uh, thanks for spending time with us. Hey, likewise. Thanks a lot, Jay. It's great to be here, and, and good luck on your hunt. I can't wait to see what you pull out of there. I think you're going to have a blast. Oh, I'm going to have a blast uh, regardless, so it's it's, uh, it's already set up for a fantastic hunt. So I uh, appreciate all your time. I'll catch you later, okay? You bet. Thank you. <laughs>